Father, we thank you for uh, the fact that you have revealed your glory in the Word of God. Lord, thank you for that Word that we're going to, to look at this morning. Even as we uh, hear of our brother Larry and we receive updates about his diagnosis, Lord, we, we long for that day where uh, we not just see your, your glory in the word, but Lord, we see your glory in the world, that it will be completely filled with your glory. There's a day that is coming when there will be no more pain, no more sickness, Lord. It will just be your goodness. And so, Lord, we wait for that day. We anticipate that day. Help us to, to hope for it and long for it more than anything else. It's in your son's name that I pray. Amen. If you've been keeping up with the, the news over these past few weeks, or even if you haven't been keeping up with the news, you've probably seen something uh, about the fact that just this last week, just last Sunday, the U.S. women's soccer team officially won the World Cup in France. And in fact, this is actually the fourth World Cup that they've won. The last one was actually the last World Cup in 2015. Uh, and uh, admittedly, I'm, I'm not actually much of a, uh, a European football fan. I'm more of an American football fan uh, where people hit each other a lot, you know. Uh, I'm a simple person. But I did get the chance to actually sit down and watch this game uh, and just kind of see uh, firsthand these women kind of prove themselves as, in fact, the most dominant and successful women's soccer team to so far have ever existed in history, which was pretty exciting. I got to see the U.S. score their first goal in the second half against the Netherlands. And then I got to see them score their second goal, bumping it up to 2-0, to zero, giving their team a little bit more hope. I got to see those last seconds on the clock kind of tick down and, and see all these uh, Americans stand up in the stands and start yelling and cheering and screaming because they knew that as each second passed on that clock, we were getting closer and closer to USA bringing home another trophy. Now, of course, it wasn't, it wasn't all cheers and smiles on that field. In fact, at the end of the game, you could see some people from uh, the Netherlands team literally collapsing on the field, just exhausted physically and emotionally because they realized they had gotten so close to that goal, that dream that they've had probably most of their lives, but they didn't quite get there. In fact, you could see some women from the Netherlands team just in tears at the end of the game, their feet raw from playing in wooden shoes all day. <laughs> and you, you compare what's going on with the Netherlands team then to, to what's going on with the U.S. I mean, they are, they are cheering and screaming in praise of their victory. For everyone on that team, this has literally been years and years and years of work coming to fruition. They've put in the time. They've done all the practices. They've studied their opponents so carefully. All so that they can claim this one thing. What is that one thing? Well, all you have to do is run a quick Google search, actually. Just search U.S. women's soccer team. And you'll actually start to read headlines that kind of show up 
and you'll find out what it was that they were seeking. Here are some that I found. Gaze upon the glory of the U.S. women's soccer team. Uber rides on wave of U.S. women's soccer team glory. Alex Morgan helps USA to World Cup glory. The U.S. is on course for glory at the Women's World Cup. What is it that this team wanted to experience? What is it that this team was trying to attain? Glory. It was the glory of victory. And we're going to find out here in John 12, 12 through 36, exactly what that word means. What is it to have glory? What is it to be glorified? But it's not going to be the definition that we might expect. It's not going to be the definition that we've heard kind of preached to us from the world. Throughout this passage, Jesus is going to intentionally and continually turn upside down how we typically think of glory. And he's going to do that by using himself as the example. He's going to kind of put himself before us and show to us what it really means to have glory, what it really means to be glorified. He's going to remind us that glory or glorification is not about self-protection or self-success or self-promotion. It's about something that's much more incredible, something that's much more worthwhile, something that's much more eternal. But before we hit on this idea of glory, I, I want to just kind of take us through this passage just section by section so that we start to get an understanding of exactly what's happening here. Look with me in verses 12 through 19, just that, that first section of our passage this morning. For most of us, this scene is, is a familiar one since it's mentioned in all four Gospels. And just like Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John is sure to include the fact that this crowd, which has been introduced in verse 12, is laying down palm branches in preparation for Jesus' entry. This actually wouldn't have been the first time that something like this has happened. In fact, over the past two centuries leading up to this point in Jesus' ministry, palm branches had progressively kind of become a national symbol for the Jewish people. For example, when Simon the Maccabee drove out Syrian forces from Jerusalem, he was honored with the waving of palm branches. When the temple was rededicated eventually after that, People celebrated in the streets by cutting palm branches down and waving them. During the Jewish wars against Rome, even the insurgents minted their own coins, and on those coins were images of palms and palm branches. So, palms, palm branches, palm leaves had become a very strong symbol of nationalism at this point when we come to John 12. And while this crowd is shouting things like, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel, it seems likely that these people weren't necessarily proclaiming that Jesus was Lord. Their statement in verse 13 is a messianic statement, but their view of the Messiah is more political than spiritual. Just like their heroes of the past, they thought Jesus is going to, to come and, and free us from all the rule of our enemies. 
We'll be our own people. Jesus is going to be our king. We'll be our, our own nation for real now, at last. And you compare this scene with John 6, 12 through 15, I mean exactly six chapters before this, where the crowd was going to take Jesus by force and make him king. So this isn't the first time that Jesus has been through an experience like this. But the difference between John 12 and John 6 is that in John 6, Jesus flees this crowd and he runs to the mountains. But here, he actually willingly enters into the crowd, knowing full well what's waiting for him knowing full well what these people want. Except Jesus doesn't enter Jerusalem on a war horse like he's a king that's about to establish his rule. Instead, what he does, according to verse 14 and 15, he comes in on a donkey's colt. So what is Jesus trying to communicate here? What is, what is he trying to say to this crowd and even to us this morning? Well, by riding in on a donkey, Jesus is telling this crowd Yes, I have been sent by the Lord. You're correct. Yes, I am king. Yes, I am the Messiah. But I'm not the kind of king or the kind of Messiah that you think or that you want. In fact, if you read the rest of Zechariah's prophecy that's quoted here in, in verse 15, it actually describes a donkey as a beast of burden. And that is the kind of king that Jesus will be. He will be a king that bears the burden of his people. He will be a Messiah who takes on the weight of sin so that those who believe in him will experience true freedom, true salvation that goes far beyond just this lifetime, that goes far beyond just some kind of kingdom that we could build in this world. Well, even though Jesus isn't really taking plays out of the, uh, the standard revolt textbook here, he's still somehow able to, uh, to kind of offend his enemies and get them a little riled up. In fact, in verse 19, you see the Pharisees saying, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now, this is actually an ironic statement, and the reason is because, of course, the world isn't literally going after Jesus at, at this point. Okay, it's not, it's not Jesus in the world versus the Pharisees. Jesus still has plenty of people who are not following him yet. But why this is ironic is because actually in their frustration, the Pharisees are foreshadowing a moment in history that is actually going to happen as a result of Jesus' ministry. There will be a day when truly the world is going to go after him. There is going to be a day when every tribe, every tongue, every nation is going to bow before Jesus Christ as King, as Lord, as Savior. And even more ironically, we start to see that universal reach of Jesus taking effect in the very next section, starting in verse 20. If we look at verses 20 and 21, we see that some Greeks have actually come to worship at this festival leading up to Passover, which was very unique. This was a Jewish festival. This was not a Greek festival. They're celebrating Passover, right? One of, one of the most recognized Jewish celebrations and holidays. And not only have they come to recognize the Passover and celebrate it, they've come to see Jesus, it says. Now, we don't actually know if their, their wish is acknowledged, if it's fulfilled, because John doesn't tell us here. 
But what John does tell us is that something unique, something incredible is happening in Jesus' ministry. And it's being evidenced by these Greeks. A door is being opened, and, and it wasn't open before. A page is kind of turning in this story. And all of this is confirmed by Jesus' statement in verse 23. He says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And this statement is significant because up until now in the book of John, Christ's hour has been spoken of, either by John or by Jesus himself, as something that's, that's in the future. It's something that hasn't happened yet. It's something that's not now. It's going to be later. And not only that, but John has also hinted at a time to come when, when Jesus would be glorified. And so in this one verse, John 12, 23, we see both of these things, these themes, the hour and Jesus' glorification kind of coming together, meeting in this one single statement. From this point forward in John's gospel, the hour is now. The hour has come and Jesus will be glorified. But what does it mean that Jesus will be glorified? Well, he actually answers that question for us in the following verse, and he does it with a short parable. In verse 24, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now, I know this can kind of seem like a, a sort of mysterious phrase that, that Jesus is presenting here. It's kind of shrouded in darkness a little bit. You don't, you don't seem to know exactly quite what he's saying. But make no mistake about it, what Jesus is teaching here is the gospel. Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient, obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The glory of Jesus is a glory rooted in sacrifice. Jesus is going to give his life for our sin so that we might be the fruit of his death. The blood of Christ waters the soil in which the fruit of the gospel grows. But this statement isn't just meant to refer to Christ's death. It's also a statement that reflects the life of anyone who claims Jesus as their Lord and their Savior. And this is confirmed by verses 25 and 26. Here Jesus moves very quickly from parable to application by extending this idea of death to his followers. Now, we'll, we'll talk about these verses a little bit more in depth in a few minutes, but the important thing for us to understand for now is that the gospel does not live in a vacuum. The death of Christ isn't something that just happened in the past, and it's not really important or relevant for today or tomorrow or the next day. No, Jesus' death calls us to something. The gospel calls us to something each and every day. It serves as an example to us of what it means to live gospel-centered lives. The Christian life, the gospel life, is a life marked by death to self. 
That is what it means to be a Christian. And in the final section of our passage, Jesus models what this kind of life through death looks like. In a moment of honesty, Jesus admits that his soul is troubled as he considers all that is about to happen, all that's about to take place, the pain and the suffering he's about to go through. Jesus is troubled. Jesus is troubled. In other words, if you've ever been intimidated or concerned by the call of the Christian life, you are not alone. Jesus has felt what you feel. But importantly, Jesus doesn't allow the horror of death to somehow overcome his obedience. In fact, really quite the opposite. Instead, Jesus recognizes his purpose, which is, according to verse 28, to glorify the Father's name. Again, Jesus' glorification is going to be a a glorification that comes through sacrifice, through submission, not through self-promotion. And if there was any doubt about what kind of sacrifice Jesus would make, he removes it in verse 32 by explaining that he will be lifted up from the earth. And notice in in this statement, this phrase, how once again Jesus kind of combines the idea of death with glory. He's going to be lifted up physically on a cross, which is why verse 33 is kind of explaining how he would die. That's how he's going to die, by by being lifted up on a cross. And yet also, he's going to be lifted up through his death spiritually. The Father is uh, is going to glorify him which is going to result in all people being drawn to himself, verse 32 says. As the Apostle Paul kind of says in uh, in Galatians, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. This is going to be the effect that the gospel has in the world. That Jesus is going to reach not just the Jews, he's going far beyond that. He's reaching the world with what he's about to do. And with that in mind, Jesus now concludes this passage with a warning and a promise. The warning is simply this. Time is beginning to run out. There's coming a day when Jesus will not be physically present on the earth, and that day is coming fast. Therefore, he says, walk in the light, otherwise you will be overcome with darkness. And here's the promise. If you walk in the light, if you believe in the light, then you will become sons of the light. That is, you will become sons of God, adopted into the inheritance of God, radiating the glory of God. So that's an overview of our passage. Now, I want to spend the rest of our time this morning looking more in depth at what I believe is actually the main takeaway of John 12, 12 through 36. And we find it in verses 23 through 26. We've already seen that this particular section deals with Jesus and his glorification, but I would argue that this passage equally deals with the life of the Christian and what we can expect in our faithful commitment to Christ as we walk alongside of him, as we follow him and pursue him in our lives. Two things that we learn from these four verses. First, Just as Christ has been glorified, so we will be glorified. 
The Apostle Paul confirms this in, in Romans 8.30 when he says, Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Glory is the natural conclusion of the Christian life. But second, as we live out the Christian life, at least on this earth, there is also a waiting. Because our day of glory is not here yet. I'm sure we're reminded of that almost every single day. That glory has not come yet. It's not complete yet. It's still to come. So, there is a glory to the Christian life. And there is also a waiting to the Christian life. Let's look first at the weight. Let's look what's involved in the weight. We learn three things are involved in waiting according to to this passage. The first is death. Verse 24 says, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. So just as Jesus has died to himself, so we are to die to ourselves. John Piper says it this way, Christ's dying for your salvation is also his design for your imitation. Let me say that again. Christ's dying for your salvation is also his design for your imitation. But dying is hard. No one wakes up in the morning in a right state of mind and says, hey, let's make today a day of dying. I want to die today. Right? No one has ever woken up in the right state of mind and said that to themselves. It is hard to die. It is hard to die to ourselves. And it only gets harder as we kind of build up our little kingdom on this earth. As we accumulate more things. As we take on more responsibilities. As we enter into more relationships. I thought dying to myself was hard, and then I got married, right? And I started constantly finding myself in just the stupidest situations, doing everything in my power to keep my preferences and my comfort alive. I did not want those things to die. For example, Abby and I will be sitting on the couch in the evenings, and you know it gets later in the evening, that's how time works, and uh, the time will come when you know it's time for bed. And that means that someone has to shut out or, or turn off the dining room and living room lights. Now, you cannot shut these lights off by going down the hall on the way to the bedroom. You have to make the brave trek 10 feet in the opposite direction and shut the lights off in the kitchen. So what do you think my mission has been as a husband ever since we bought that house? It has been to be the first one down that hall before Abby even knows what hit her, okay? This is the insanity of marriage. in, In these littlest of situations, the most ridiculous of scenarios, we do everything in our power to protect ourselves from dying, to keep that heart of the flesh pumping. And yet Jesus says here, if you're going to live for yourself, then you're going to die by yourself. Because the glory that I have is only attainable through death. 
as you wait for my return. We are called to die to ourselves. Well, the second thing that's involved in waiting is hating your life in this world. Verse 25 says, Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world. Let me stop there because that phrase, in this world, is important. We shouldn't miss that. It's, it's not that we hate our lives ultimately when we hate our lives. It's that we hate our lives in this world. In other words, we don't, we don't buy our best life now. We don't have our best life now. Our best life is later. You can love your spouse, but, but if you love your spouse ultimately, you love them too much. You can love your job, but if you love your job ultimately, you love it too much. You can love your children, but if you love them ultimately, you love them too much. You can love financial freedom, but if you love it ultimately, you love it too much. Our hearts are to belong to a future hope that is still to come. Not the shiny comforts that we enjoy today. Friends, compared to the glory of Christ, the glory that is to come, the castles that we build in the sand are nothing. And so we hate the things of this world. Well, not only does waiting involve death and hating your life in this world, but finally, Jesus says it involves service to him. It involves service to Christ. That's the third thing that waiting involves. Verse 26 says, actually two times, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now that's not an easy thing to do in a world of power grabbing, in a culture that, that values uh, prestige above almost anything else. How many stories can we think of just, just in this year, in the past six months, that we've heard of people misusing their power and authority so that they can use and abuse someone lower than them and somehow become more powerful, more successful, more wealthy, more authoritative because of it. But that's not what Jesus calls us to here. That's not the Christian life. It's a life of service, of servanthood. It's a desire to elevate the will of Christ above our own will. It's a desire to give everything so that His will is accomplished, not our own. That's the Christian life. And it's a hard life. It's hard to die to self. It's hard to hate the things of this world. It's hard to serve Christ. But hard does not mean joyless. We can have joy even when it's hard. Even when we wait. Because we know that there is glory to come. There's going to be a day of glory at the end of it all. And that glory, Jesus tells us, includes three things. And so we have the wait, we have 
we have Jesus telling us to die to self, to hate our lives in this world, to serve him. But now he's, he's going to go on to what our glory is going to look like. The first thing that this glory involves is bearing fruit. Look again at, at verse 24. It says, yes, the seed must die, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. You cannot die in vain if you are a follower of Christ. The investment of your life is promised to yield a return. You will never hear the word guarantee from a financial advisor or investor ever. I just met with one last week. I would have loved to hear that kind of promise come out of his mouth. That the money that I was about to give him, that I had earned rightfully, worked hard for, that he's going to take now and do something with, I would have loved for him to tell me, you have a guaranteed return on this. But he can't make that kind of promise. Only Jesus can make that kind of promise. And we might have to give up some of the comforts of life. We might not have as big of a house as we dreamed of having. We might be the weird person in our friend group. But the investment of our life in the kingdom of God is the wisest, surest investment we could ever make. Because the death of ourselves is promised to bear much fruit. Our death will not be, cannot be, in vain. Jesus has promised that when we die to self, we will bear much fruit. Second, not only will we bear this fruit, but we will also gain eternal life, according to the, to the last part of, of verse 25. It says, whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So what you give to God now in this world will be returned to you countless times over again in glory. The New Testament has lots to say about self-denial, but it never talks about self-denial in an ultimate sense. It's not that we just hate our lives in general. We hate our lives in this world. We don't commit ourselves to the things of this world. We don't pledge our allegiance and devotion and hope to the things of this world because we know that a day is coming when Jesus will satisfy us for eternity. There is eternal life that is waiting for us. That's why the Apostle Paul can say in Romans 8, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. And so we look forward to that life when the things of this world will pass away and we enjoy Christ forever. Well, the third and final thing which is included in this glory to come is revealed at the end of verse 26. If anyone serves me, Jesus says, the Father will honor him. So what do we enjoy in this glory? Honor from the Father. If we commit ourselves to Christ, if we serve him with our lives, a day will come when the Father will stand before us and actually say the words, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. This is what C.S. Lewis called the weight 
of glory. W-E-I-G-H-T. The weight of glory. That despite our sin and brokenness, despite all the guilt and the shame that we have accumulated over our lives, despite the fact that it is Christ that has worked through us and in us, God could actually look at us and be pleased. Could look at us with approval. Because when he looks at us, it's not our sin and our shame and our guilt that he sees. It is Christ's righteousness in its place. And it's not because of anything that we've done. It's because of what Christ has done for us, through us, and in us. That is the glory that we're promised. And it's worth the wait. Well, Jesus, we thank you for the glory that you displayed on the cross. Lord, we thank you that you were a servant king. That you came not to just fulfill your own will. Lord, you fulfilled the, Father, uh, the Father's will as well. That you paid the penalty for our sins. So that in this moment right now, we could remember what you have done for us. That we could taste and see the sacrifice that you have made. And Lord, not only that, but that we could look in anticipation towards the glory that you are going to reveal once again one day when you return and the glory that we'll share in. And so may we live in expectation of that day. May it shape everything that we do. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.